Welcome everyone to episode 10, the final episode of season three of the Northern Spin podcast. I'm Michael Taylor. By day, I'm a journalist, broadcaster, walker, father, husband, all of the above, and the editor of Business Desk in the Northwest. Here's my happy, clappy, conservative-loving co-presenter, Chris McGuire. Chris, what bringeth good news this week? Well, my, my cup of spilleth over. Um, I'm the executive editor of Business Cloud and Tech Blast, as you mentioned there. Um, can't believe it's the you end of... You've got about 10 startup businesses you run as well. No, you? I've got a few little things. I, I'm keeping the economy going, or at least I'm trying to. One of them's going to work. Uh, make It could be this podcast. But I can't believe it's the end of season three of Northern Spin already. But I am the bearer of good news. Um, now, I love a statistic and facts. I actually, I actually, one of my, uh, one of my little party tricks is I can tell you the score of any premiership result this season, more often than not. Um, but six of our first nine episodes of season three appear in the top 10 of the most downloaded episodes of the podcast ever, which of course we started last uh, September. So the news is we're growing. That's great news. Uh, I've got some good news as well. After a short break, after the elections in May, season four of Northern Spin will be back, won't we? Yeah, looking forward to yeah. it. Yeah, looking Sponsors forward are to on it. board. We've got some good ideas for interviews. Yeah. A few yeah. little tweaks to the running order. Um, and if you've got some ideas of your own, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. And questions as well. You know, I'll put something on social media. Now, I know that you don't drink, Michael, um, and uh, but Northern Spin is without doubt the Heineken of podcasts because it quite literally reaches the parts that other podcasts don't reach. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, we remain in Apple's podcast charts in the UK, in Bahrain. We love Bahrain, France and Ireland. We went up a lot in Ireland last week. Uh, I looked at a heat map of our downloads and we've got listeners as far north as Iceland and the Shetland Islands. So I always think to myself, there's somebody maybe a, a cattle farmer listening to an episode of Northern Spin. And that makes me feel really warm and tingly. Good. I, I, it always amazes me, amuses me and delights me, actually, how many people come up to me and say that they love the podcast with, you know, ideas and suggestions. So, yeah, fantastic. I'm glad I'm glad we're hitting the spot with some people. Got some nice comments over the weekend as well. I shared it on Facebook, which I don't normally do, and tagged in a lot of um, a lot of friends and family around the world. So maybe that accounts for some of the Irish numbers well fingers crossed I was talking to a guy in Holland he uh, was looking at hosting an event potentially in Manchester and he said that he did his due diligence on me and he spoke to his friend in Sheffield and he said yeah he's a guy who co-presents the Northern Spin um, somebody else came up to me and said Chris there's nothing wrong with being happy clappy so that nickname that you've given me looks like it's here to stay so what we're we talking about this week on the podcast Chris lots to go at um, we decided that given the fact we're having a short break we need to shine a light on the forthcoming local elections on May the 4th and why the Red Wall seats across the north are going to be so important to the overall outcome. There are 8,000 seats up for grabs and they represent Rishi Sunak's first electoral test since becoming Prime Minister. So we're going to be identifying the key battlegrounds across the north. I always love it when the elections fall on May the 4th because it's Star Wars Day, isn't it? I'm not a big Star Wars fan. May the 4th be with you. <laughs> Oh, right. Okay. There you yeah. go. Tumbleweed. So we're also going to be talking through the uh, podcast about Labour's magic money tree. That's not a phrase I would ever use. In fact, I think George Osborne fell off his dinosaur using it in 2010. But it's definitely Chris's description, which I will uh, put him right about. We're going to return to something we touched on a couple of episodes ago, uh, the junior doctor strike, which is very topical, as in a separate pay dispute. The Royal College of Nursing have announced another 48-hour strike after their members rejected the pay offer for England 
Ireland, while Unison workers in the NHS accepted theirs. And uh, you want to talk about something uh, we, we spoke about, I think, in Series 1, which was uh, the problems at Manchester Airport, and uh, there could be some good news there. Yeah, I think it seems to be getting better. Um, as we end Season 3 of Northern Spin and prepare for Season 4, we simply couldn't do it without our colleagues and friends at What Media, who expertly produce our podcast every week. They're the kings of video content creation, and they turn our weekly ramblings into the hit weekly podcast and YouTube show that is Northern Spin. They took a punt on us back in September, signed up for the journey, and I have to say it's been absolutely fantastic. So thank you to Jamie and Ellis in particular, who are with us in the studio right now, producing the Northern Spin podcast. And and, and Jamie's a crowd surfer, we discovered earlier. Yeah, and and Elise is a dog walker for a fellow as well. Really you're a real credit to your parents you two you know that <laughs> absolutely fantastic that's a really old person thing to say I as know, well. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. well we are old people yeah anyway come on uh we're gonna to go to our first interval or at first our break that was just the intro and hear about our first sponsor oscar technology oscar share northern spins commitment to integrity Oscar is a growing and award-winning recruitment consultancy delivering talent across multiple sectors, including tech, digital, life sciences, energy, and construction. They've got bases all over the world, and when it comes to tech recruitment, Oscar is the name you can trust. Welcome back to Northern Spin. Before we fly around the north as part of our local election roundup, it's worth providing a bit of background about these local elections because not all our listeners will be devotees of local elections. No, well, I've got my anorak on now for some proper deep dive into the intricacies of politics across local government in the north of England. Not all local elections are the same. There are three types of election that are coming up this year. Some councils will be electing all of their local councillors, and they do that on a four-year basis. Some elect half their local councillors every two years, and some elect a third of their local councillors. Usually that's when they are what's called multi-member wards. So you'll have three people in a particular council area, and you rotate, so you have an election pretty much every year, and then what's called a fallow year in the fourth year. On May the 4th, Star Wars Day, a total of 230 local authorities will be holding elections. Of these, 130 of them are whole council elections. 100 are electing a third of their members. Of the 130 electing their whole council, and sometimes this is as a result of boundary changes, the vast majority were up for election in 2019. So you have to sort of bear in mind when you're comparing like for like what the political climate was like in 2019, right? Who was leader of different parties? What other small parties were around at the time? <clears throat> so one interesting aspect of these elections, which I think is worth f- focusing on as well, is that these elections, for the first time in England, voters will need to show a form of photographic ID to cast their vote. Uh, a passport, a driving license, a blue badge, they're all valid. Uh, and an Oyster card in London, apparently, is valid if you're old, but not if you're young. Well, you mentioned the photo IDs, and I do think it's a step in the right direction, but um, your old mate, Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham, stirred the pot this week. He tweeted this. He said, can the Conservatives honestly hold their hands up and say they made no calculation about securing political advantage when deciding to introduce voter uh, ID? Now, you are, we've mentioned before on this podcast, a fully paid up member of the Andy Burnham fan club. I think, I think you're honorary secretary. But And I like Andy Burnham, but that's a bit chompy of Burnham to be criticising the rules even before the election. And you've got to admit that, Michael, surely. 
Well, no, I think he's only articulating what many people are saying, which is that this is a very heavy-handed solution to a problem that's been drastically overstated. And I think it's only right, therefore, to ask what calculation the Conservatives have done when they've when they've when they've um, made this decision about um, photo ID for voting. Personally, I'm actually all in favour of using technology much more widely to sort of clean up the whole system about using ID for people to access all sorts of different public services. There are so many different bureaucracies that allow us to use government services that aren't joined up. So I've got national insurance number, driving license number. During the pandemic, the NHS rapidly upgraded its capability. And we've all got an NHS app on our smartphones now. I've got a passport. I used to, my student ID that I had until last year used to get me into places and, uh, and access all sorts of different services. So yeah. And voting has actually never been sensible. All you need is particularly complicated. All you need is your, your polling card with your number on and you turn up and then. You don't even need that sometimes. You just go up and say what your name is and where you live. And the Tories seem to think that there's a problem of voter fraud, and yet there doesn't seem to be any evidence that anyone's ever been prosecuted for for it or that there's any particular surprise in any of the elections that have ever happened. That, do you think that's true? Um I think the thing is, it's it's becoming an increasing issue. And if you've got the technology available, you might as well use it. Um, you know, there's going to be winners and losers, but but it won't be photo ID that will decide the outcome of this uh, local election, in my opinion. Um, I think um, what I think is really interesting about these local elections is that if you look at a map of the UK and look at where these elections are taking place, it's not all across the country. So there are pockets and a huge pocket is across the north. And it was interesting, uh, Greg Hans, the Tory party chairman, was doing the rounds yesterday, recording this on Mondays on the TV on Sunday. You know, he basically said, that we expect to lose a thousand seats, so he's basically trying to, you know, do a bit really? of the. They're uh, saying that already. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. He's basically trying to lay the groundwork to wow. say, you know, we expect to lose a thousand seats. We said as much two weeks ago or three weeks ago. The Tories have the most to lose because thirty-six percent of the councils up for election are conservative majority councils. A further thirty-five percent have no single party, which is really where the interest is. Only twenty percent are currently Labour controlled. The way we've decided to try and do this is we don't want to look at every single election across the north because we'll be here all day and we'll bore our listeners. Our growing number of listeners but we've broken it down into four areas the northeast which i think is really interesting yorkshire and humber we're going to do a little bit on major cities like liverpool which is interesting leeds manchester and sheffield and the northwest full disclosure i mean i've i've been pressed in the flesh this last week speaking to various people doing loads of research but uh, a lot of the figures that we've got have come from the local government information units local election guide and that's uh, and that's really fascinating uh, as you know michael we do like to give credit to other publications don't we yes we always like to give credit to other other publications and researchers, academics, whoever. Absolutely, it's because important we do absolutely, that. it's important we do that. Now we'll start in the northeast because if the Conservatives do badly, then uh, in the northeast, then the omens for the general election won't be good at all. And that's the reason we're so excited about the local elections for because a lot of people see this as the forerunner to the general election in a year or eighteen months' time. There are only ten seats up for grabs in the northeast. Ten, ten councils. Yeah, ten councils. Yeah, sorry, ten councils. Only ten councils up for grabs in the northeast. They can be split into two blocks of five. You've got the five Tyneside Labour councillors. Uh, ca- ca- sorry, uh, Labour council which will be those 
in, in and around Newcastle. And, yeah. uh, and, and they're unlikely to change hands. They are Labour. Um, but all eyes are focused on the five councils in and around Teesside. So that would be uh, Har- uh, that would be Hartlepool area as well. Hartlepool, that would be, Middlesbrough, Redcliffe, uh, places like that. Darlington and uh, Middlesbrough. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, Conservative Teesside Mayor, Ben Blocker-Houchin. I know a few people do play Northern Spin Bingo. So if we don't mention um, Blocker-Houchin, yeah. they won't get a line. Um, he, he's always said that the Northeast, especially his own Teesside base, is the one region which has got real tangible evidence of levelling up in, in, in action. The Treasury opened a base in Darlington. There's the Freeport, albeit that might not be good news for local crabs. They would deny that. And there's been millions of pounds worth of inward investment. Teesside itself is where the action is because the five councils there are classified as having no overall control, meaning, as the name suggests, no single party has a majority. Yeah, but interestingly, Darlington is Tory-run, but they don't have a majority, so they have those alliances with those little independent groups who often represent specific local areas. And clearly, Labour wants to reverse Tory control of Darlington. That's going to be quite an interesting one to watch, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, Rishi I, Sunak's been there pointing at potholes. Which, which, as you know, was repaired last week. Um, <laughs> that's without doubt the worst picture of this uh, election yeah. run-up. I think we're making this about, or, or there's a danger of making this about Conservatives versus Labour. That's not the case. The Lib Dems are going to have a huge part to play. But a lot of these local elections... Northeast, do you think so? A lot of these local elections have got no, not not in the northeast, but a lot of these local elections have got a lot of independence as well, and they can really hold the balance um, a lot of the time. Darlington Council, you mentioned it, 2019, the Conservatives gained control of the council for the first time in 40 years. They do rely on these cross-party alliances, um, you know, to get stuff done. The Conservatives control the council, but Labour are desperate to return to power. What's interesting about Darlington is that if you're looking for a Labour versus Conservative contest, Darlington is it. If Labour can win Darlington and win it back, it's a big step uh, and yep. a big step in the right direction for Keir Starmer. Good. Um, what about um, Middlesbrough, though? What's going on there? Because they've got um, not only a council, which was traditionally Labour controlled for a long time, they've also got a directly elected mayor, Andy Preston. And we spoke about him last week on the podcast, where I said he's one of those mayors, directly elected leader for an area with no, he's got no particular base. There isn't an Andy Preston party. He's, he's a bit of a Tory, ex yeah. hedge fund guy, isn't he? Who's yeah, yeah. a local hero gone home. Um, he doesn't really have any great power because he doesn't have a you know, a cabinet that particularly respects him. So, I, you know, I, I think it's touch and go whether he'll get back in again. This, I'm not sure. There's four mayoral elections um, on May the 4th, and the only one that's really relevant to us is the one in Middlesbrough. I mean, Andy Preston's an interesting character. I don't know him. He is independent, and he one would think he would lend himself to, to you know, conservatism, given his background. Um, but he's not very popular. Labour have been very, very critical of him. Um, and the council has had a difficult time as well. I think one of the challenges you've got in Middlesbrough is that they're top of all the league tables you don't want to be top of or towards the top, like social deprivation, poverty, uh, drug misuse. Um, you know, there's a high crime. Yeah, crime as well. You look at what he's putting out on social media and he, he, he went public last week and he said that there's this campaign against me, but I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to rise to it. That would presumably be led by the Labour Party because they really have been uh, at loggerheads so so i think there's a lot of interest in middlesbrough and particularly that mayoral debate yeah definitely so the northeast will, as a whole is going to be a key test to see if labor can make some real dents into what a lot of people in politics are calling the red wall it'll be a real test about labor's lead in the national opinion polls to see whether that translates into a local level 
at a local level. And it's no coincidence that people like Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner have been seen in and around Darlington a lot. That's why we're not doing on manoeuvres this week, isn't it? Because everyone's yeah. behaving themselves yeah. and being party loyalists. Just and keep an eye out. Elections. Uh, just keep an eye out, listeners, for Hartlepool and Stockton on Tees. Stockton's another council with no overall control. The Labour Party lost single party control of the council in 2019. Um, they only need to pick up a couple of seats, a couple of handful of seats, and to, uh, you know, regain their majority. So basically, I'm saying to everybody, keep an eye out on side. Very good. So next, we're going to go to Yorkshire and Humber. This region has five unitary authorities, seven metropolitan districts with elections this year. In 2022, the Lib Dems took control of Hull City Council and in a decade of Labour Party rule. That was, of course, John Prescott's old stomping ground, um, the former Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, the Lib Dems controlled 29 of the council's 57 seats. Um, Labour previously with a local party, but the Lib Dems are able to form an administration despite not having a majority. Sheffield's another one to watch. Labour have had a bit of a rough ride by and being pushed by the Greens. They obviously have Magic Majid, the uh, the mayor for a while, from the Green Party over there. They've had a load of heat locally about cutting down trees. That could be a key factor in the elections in Sheffield. The Lib Dems have run Sheffield, and there's actually quite some quite prosperous parts of the of the area, like Sheffield Hallam constituency towards the Peak District, where Nick Clegg was the MP for a long time. So I think, you know, that could be an interesting little tussle. I definitely don't think incidentally, you know, we talk about this tree felling row and it's very easy if you don't understand it to think to yourself, well, it's just a load of tree huggers. It's absolutely not. No, it's a big issue in Sheffield. There there were loads of trees were literally cut down with no warning. It created a real stink. It did. So also keep your eye on Kirklees and Calderdale. That's, you know, in old money, that's Halifax and Huddersfield, where Labour are the largest party. Calderdale, incidentally, it's Happy Valley country, isn't it? We, Absolutely, yeah. We love about Happy Valley. Podcast before, but uh, Chris, you want to look at the big cities with the large local authorities, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I was a Conservative candidate, I wouldn't stand in Manchester because of the... Uh, you might have to. This, well, there's, there's this phenomenon, which is probably worth telling listeners about, called paper candidates, where they um, they, they basically stand with absolutely no hope of winning, but they want to just give their... Just keep keep the flag in the ground. And in multi-member wards, when there's all that elections, they literally can't field a full slate. So they might at least just put one up. That's what the Tories are doing, for instance... Um, in uh, parts of Stockport. See, uh, Manchester's got 96 seats and yeah. 91 of those are Labour. So I think it's the most Labour area anywhere in the country. Um, Leeds as well is an interesting one. Um, Liverpool is is the one that probably fascinates me. If you look at Leeds, there's 58 Labour councillors compared to 21 Conservatives, seven Lib Dems, few independents. Can't see a lot of change in Leeds. The one I think we should keep an eye out on is Liverpool. We've alluded to it before because Liverpool Council and Liverpool generally has gone through a tough time. And they're, you, having, they're having all-out elections, so every single member is up for election. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you would expect in Labour, in, in Liverpool, if you're Labour, that's enough to win that seat. Because certainly if you look at the MP situation, that's, that's pretty much uh, yeah, what, what happens. You say that though, but there's been splits in the Labour group and in my adult lifetime, the uh, when I first arrived in Liverpool in the northwest to be the editor of Insider in the two thousands, Liverpool's run by Liberal Democrats. No, no, you're right, and the Liberal Democrats are making some of a resurgence in the south of the city. There's something I do need to uh, just just by way of background give yeah, yeah. some um, yeah. you know give some background to our listeners. So Liverpool City Council was subject to something called the Max Collar uh, inspection. Um, is it pronounced Caller? Max Caller. Max Caller. Okay, this was incredibly dam- uh, damning. It followed the arrest of the then mayor Joe Anderson in a uh, corruption investigation. 
investigation. He he subsequently stood down. The um, Calais investigation was so damaged, uh, so damning of the council, it prompted a raft of huge electoral reforms. It prompted a lot of changes, but especially in terms of the electoral reforms as well. So previously, Liverpool was split into 30 wards with three councils elected in each. And you mentioned earlier that when they would do these elections every three every three or four years, one of those councillors would be would be up for election. What they've done now is they've gone all out. Um, so as well as the ward changes, the number of councillors have been reduced from 90 to 85. The magic number for a majority is 43 for any party to win a majority. Labour are going into this vote. I think it's with 58 votes, but with the new boundary changes and some defections to independence, the size of the majority is one to watch. Labour's biggest threat, clearly, in Liverpool won't come from the Tories. It'll come from the Lib Dems, especially in the south of the city. You mentioned earlier there is a history of the Lib Dems in Liverpool. What's your thoughts, Michael? Yeah, it'd be a shock for Labour not to win a majority, frankly. They're under new leadership, Liam Robinson. Um, young, bright leader might bring something different to the Labour Party, rejuvenate it a little bit. Uh, the party's reputation clearly was damaged by the the, the rule of Joe Anderson as as the leader, not to be confused with Joanne Anderson, who did a sterling job trying to hold the whole thing together for a little while. Um, they're getting rid of the office of mayor as well, aren't they? They're going to have a leader. Yeah. And it was revealed that 14 past and present Labour councillors have got 51 parking tickets that uh, were rescinded by local officers. That doesn't look good. So I think, yeah, the performance of the Lib Dems will be pretty crucial in Liverpool. So expect to see lots of um, dodgy bar charts, um, fake magazines, fake newspapers, diamond boards with winning here on them, and all the, the Lib Dem pavement politics playbook, which well, they're famous for. I'm going to call you up on that because, um, you know, we're talking Conservatives, Labour, and yet, like I mentioned before, a lot of these seats will be decided by the independents, but the Lib Dems, the Lib Dems, I think, are going to have a, you know, a really good, uh, a really good uh, local election. Uh, you've seen firsthand, though, in terms of the way the Lib Dems come across as this really nice party, but some of the things that they use. I mean, I, I saw recently. Why, why do you think that? Well, I, I saw. Why do you think the Lib Dems are nice? Well, because 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 you don't see a lot of well. We don't see the nasty party type adverts, you know, having a go at Rishi Sunak. But in terms of, um, I saw recently what looked like a magazine at first glance. Yeah. And it was, I thought it was like, not that I read women's magazines, there's nothing against them, like take a break and chat yeah, and stuff yeah, like this. Yeah, yeah. And I looked at it and it was a picture of a uh, of a local, it turned out to be a Lib Dem councillor. I think she was planting a tree or something. Yeah. And I looked at it and I thought to myself, that looks like chat magazine. It wasn't. Yeah. You know what it was? It was a Lib Dem brochure. Yeah, that's right. They do loads of this stuff. They do... They also do handwritten letters on Basel, like on Basildon Bond paper, handwritten, but obviously it's printed, um, meant, meant to be personalised, telling people. Their big message is always to try to um, pivot from the centre and appeal to voters of the party who they think that they, they can push into third place and put a squeeze on their votes. It's actually anti-democratic and it's a tactic known as voter suppression. So you basically, you de- disincentivize anybody who's inclined to vote Labour or Conservative in an area where they consider themselves to be the insurgent party who can beat the incumbent. And so they will do, in some areas, basically Labour leaflets in orange, you know, defend the NHS, invest in public services. And in Tory areas, it'll be, oh, you know, stop creeping socialism, stop government waste, cut taxes, vote for us, we're the nice Tories. Do you think in Tory areas? Do you think the the Lib Dems have finally moved on from the uh, disastrous alliance with the Conservatives no. in two thousand and ten fifteen? Of course they haven't. Yeah, no. 
because you can basically fit the Lib Dem parliamentary party into a minibus still. Yeah. They do control a few local councils. And th they've often been described as the cockroaches of local politics. Once you've got them, you can never quite get rid of them. Yeah. Who's, who's described them as the cockroaches of local politics? It's quite, oh, trust me, right, okay. it, it, it's, it's a widely used thing. I've heard, to be fair, I've heard Tim Farron using that analogy okay. and joke, joking about it. Um, yeah, and when, once they're embedded in, you know, they, they set themselves up as local champions. They create these sometimes entirely fake campaigns. You know, you, you watch the utterances. Some, follow people like Mark Pack, who's a Lib Dem campaign director, and Councillor John Leach. He's another good example. Follow him and what he gets up to and the statements he puts out. He's just an absolute pain in the backside. What, what's um, my favourite cockroach? If you're not obviously a supporter of John Leach. My favourite cockroach fact is that in the event of nuclear Armageddon, the only thing that will survive will be cockroaches. Well, that, that's exactly the point. Yeah. That's exact, yeah. exactly the analogy that the Let's talk about the Northwest, make. Michael, because I know you're interested in it. Yeah. So in the Northwest, there are 31 different councils up for election, a few close contests to look out for. Chris, you'll no doubt be hoping the Conservatives retain their wafer-thin majority in Pendle. I don't know. Why did I say that? Yeah. You're a neutral observer in <laughs> I, this. I'm Conservative of the lowercase c, but, yeah, uh, but they, they, they only need to uh, lose a single seat to lose a majority. That's why that Pendle seat is so yeah, interesting. I can't. Yeah. We'll come on to this in a moment. Rossendale and Berry have small Labour majorities. I don't think Berry's going to go either way, as yeah. uh, as I think maybe you're suggesting. They had their all-out elections. I think Labour are quite confident. They got Christian Wakeford as the as the MP who defected from the Conservatives to Labour. James Frith is running a very, very visible campaign in the Berry North constituency where he wants to get re-elected as the MP. He had a very short stint between 2017 and 2019. So they've got what I would call Labour's ground game, really, really firing. And they've got Lucy Smith, who's a councillor in Berry as well. She used to be a regional organiser for the Labour Party. So I think they've got a pretty strong game in Berry. I'd be very surprised if they went backwards. They seem to have dealt with their anti-Semitism problem, particularly in Berry South as well. So I think... There are 10 councils in the Northwest with no overall control. So if I was marking your card, I would keep an eye out on West Lancashire, Blackpool and Bolton. Bolton is really interesting because that's where you know, different groups in, in Farmworth and, uh, and different parts of Bolton are really uh, 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 holding the balance of power there. So it's not a Tory Labour fight. It's more of a the independents throwing a little bit of grit into the mix there mm. as well. Yeah. Um, look, given your... Uh Given your background with Stockport, because you worked on the Labour Group, full disclosure, you know, we've always been very open about that for a few yeah. years before uh, your new role at Business Desk. Um, lots of things happening in Stockport. Um, and I think the uh, Lib Dems certainly seem to be making lots of noise. What's your uh, what's your inside track on Stockport? Yeah, so we spoke a little bit about the Edgeley Ward last week where former Labour councillor Matt Wynne walked and he's formed a group called the Edgeley Community Association. He's got two friends of his to stand with him on that slate. He's, he's reasonably confident and I drove through the area last weekend and saw he's got lots of boards up outside people's houses. You always know if you're in an area where there's a contested election because it's part of the campaigner's idea, uh, um, game plan, is to get people to put garden stakes with posters. Do you get them around where you live? You do, you do, but I would, you would never, ever see me do that. Yeah. Um, so the strange thing about Stockport is that Labour need the Tories to do well against the Lib Dems in the prosperous areas to the south of the borough, like Bramall North, Bramall South, Hazel Grove. There's a new ward because there's a boundary changes, hence it being all out elections, a new ward called Norbury. And 
See, the Lib Dems, I've said this before, they're all things to all people. They fight these very, very well-organized campaigns that try to mislead voters that the other party to the right or the left can't win here, which is their campaign slogan that they put with an arrow on people's vote share. The bar charts never really mathematically stand up to any scrutiny. My local intelligence tells me it's going to be really close in Stockport. There are a couple of ex-Labour guys standing as independents also in the Manor Ward. Um, Chris Murphy and Andy Sorton, they're trying to dent the Labour left, who are sort of colleagues around the MP, Navendu Mishra. I've talked about um, uh, Matt Wynn's group in in, um, in Edgeley Ward as well. And But really, I think the key issue there is going to be the Tory meltdown and how much the Tory group, at the moment it's four councillors, if they can actually hold on to their seats in Bramall North, Bramall South, and maybe gain one in Norbury and, Wood, uh, Norbury and Woodsmore. Well, one of the interesting things about local elections, though, is always voter turnout. I think yeah. it's typically about yeah. 30%, isn't it? Whereas in a general election, it's close to 70%. Yeah. So if the Conservative vote isn't energised to come out and vote, that's going to play into the hands of Lib Dems. Yeah, one of the things in Stockport, so I worked on the elections last year, counting that we... And, you get to have a look at the ballots when they're opening. You can track where you think turnout is and what it's like. In Brinnington and Central Ward, which is flats in the town centre and the quite deprived estate of Brinnington, just north of the M60 motorway, turnout's around 20%. Mm. Yeah. And then you go to other wards where it's contested, you know, the places where you have lots of garden posters and and uh, door knocking teams out all, all, uh, all, all the time, gets up to about 50% where it's quite contested and they're the more prosperous wards. Mm. So, yeah, but turnout, yeah, it's absolutely crucial. And the, the main issue to think about, so we're comparing 2019, with, uh, these elections with 2019, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, the Brexit Party was a thing. Boris Johnson was the Tory leader and they hadn't quite recovered. Um, the, the, there was a whole chaos around Brexit and the Lib Dems are an insurgent force. So, yeah. It's going to be interesting. It's all changed. So let's, let's change since. So let's, but do, do the people who who you know, Workington man, Worcester woman, all these key demographic groups that the party strategists are pivoting on, are they the sort of people that turn out to vote in local elections? That's the contention. And political scientist Paula Surridge, who I read recently, says they're not. We've just had the Grand National last week, so I'm going to give you my three to watch. These are the three elections that I'm most interested in. Darlington and Middlesbrough in the North East and Liverpool. And uh, what three would you mark my card for? Well, obviously Stockport for my own local interest. Bolton because of the local angle. And another one in Greater Manchester, I'm afraid. Um, Oldham because uh, there have been all those local scandals. There's been the input of the um, conspiracy theorists around that guy, Raja Mir. And I think uh, the, the rise of the fails with independent group. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to play for. Anyway, the next bit is linked to all the elections, and I'm very interested in how you try and defend what you're calling Labour's magic money tree. Please explain what you mean. Okay, and what I need you to do, Michael, is I need you to have an open mind about this as well, because I sense... You're going to have a closed mind. Okay, last week we discussed, and I think we both agreed that Labour's become the new Nazi party after their ill-advised personal attack on Rishi Sunak. We, we did we did no such thing. <laughs> we did not agree on that one. Okay, well, I called... I think I pointed out to you the fact that politics is a rough trade and that politicians need to be held accountable for the things that okay. they say and the things that they do. Well, if you're trying to defend that personal attack on Rishi Sunak on that 
horrible advert, particularly the one, the first one. Uh, Poor is she. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, listen, we didn't agree on that, seemingly. Uh, and uh, I wonder if we're going to agree on this. Like, these are some of Labour's adverts from the last week okay, that I've picked off. I just picked off six at random. Uh, Labour will take tough action to protect people from scam calls. Labour will reform planning laws to build more affordable homes. Labour will stop entire developments being sold off plans to overseas investors. Um, Labour would freeze council tax this year. Labour would revitalise our high streets. Labour would stop people getting trapped in unwanted contracts. And so it goes on. Uh, I've mentioned there about the entire developments, these buildings of developments being sold off before anybody can buy and being sold off to overseas investors. But don't worry, Labour are going to make sure that doesn't happen. So a couple of things have happened here. Clearly what's happened is a cleaner has been cleaning the Labour Party office and they've gone behind the sofa and they found this like hit this folder, probably blown the cobwebs off and it's got Labour policies. So Labour suddenly decided, actually, we've had no policy announcements for like 50 years. Let's unfurl a load. And obviously, they're trying to persuade the floating voters at the local elections on May the 4th, of which it's estimated a third of voters haven't made their mind up. So clearly, Labour have promised to be the fiscally responsible party and yet they are making all these promises. So, Michael, I don't know if you like, you know, you're green-fingered and you like gardening. Where is Labour's magic money tree? Well, sometimes, Chris, you do surprise me with rare lines of understated wisdom, but this is not one of those moments. It's tired. It's. You, you, I think you're obviously very nostalgic for the golden era of George Osborne with his 2015 Tory attack lines bordering, frankly, on the meaningless. None of these initiatives are tied to large-scale capital ups uh, spending. The, the only one where I think you've got some validity is the whole issue that Labour would freeze council tax this year. You either be, believe in empowering local politicians to make decisions or you don't. Centrally dictating to local councils that Keir Starmer thinks you shouldn't put up council tax is anti-democratic and I don't agree with it. But these, these are about departmental priorities in central government and they're also about empowering local councils through the Localism Act or the Local Government Act or in housing legislation to make meaningful strategic decisions for the benefit of local people on issues that they care about. And in particular, let's 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 have a look at the one that you did look at. Selling uh, investments into property off plan to overseas investors and then basically see these tower blocks. It's a big problem in London, by the way, of tower blocks where you just don't see any lights ever come on because people don't live in them. They just wait for the capital uplift for that apartment to rise in value and then they'll flog it on in a few years' time. How's that helping local people? So actually, if you could amend the legislation, that, that actually has to be a, a home that's, that, that somebody lives in. That, that's to people's benefit. Why is that an unpopular magic monetary issue? It's literally about retaining wealth and opportunity in this country, L literally fertilizing the very ground that the money tree that will create the taxes and re that, that, that we can improve our public services with can, can grow here, not in an uh, overseas offshore tax haven. What's wrong with that. Uh, yeah, I think the sentiment's right. Actually, you mentioned it's a big problem. Do you agree with me? You were just being egregiously <laughs> argumentative and evoking George Osborne. No, what I'm saying is is that, that Labour are making all these promises um, and uh, I don't I don't think most of them will come to much. But in terms of the idea of not selling off developments to, uh, you know, to uh, overseas investors, 
You mentioned it's a big problem in uh, London. It's a big problem, actually, in uh, Salford Keys as well. I think there's lots of those flats have been sold to, um, you know, to international investors. And actually, last year, I was lucky enough to go to Dubai. And the biggest building in Dubai is called the Burj Khalifa. It's, uh, it's huge. It would be if it's the biggest building in the world. But, um, you know, a number of those floors are, are empty. And they've Homes been sold living off. in. Yeah, they've been sold off to investors. Same um, in China. Yeah, and they just uh, they're just left empty. Which, so which all, all the incentives are wrong, and that is a big issue that yeah. needs to be looked at. And I'm glad that it's being raised as a debating topic by the Labour Party, in the, even in the run-up to this election. The other big issue in this country that nobody seems to take seriously is the outdated planning system. And I'm glad that that's been raised as a, as a potential red-hot issue because we need to build more homes. When I worked in Stockport... The late, great Sheila Bailey was the driving force behind Viaduct Homes, which builds local authority council housing in the the town centre. Mixed uses, mixed dwellings, and and also uses land that had been used for commercial uses. Yeah, shops, basically, like the Sainsbury's supermarket. Level it, knock it down and build a new estate that people can live on because people need houses. And they do well. We can and what the Dems are doing is saying, "Well, we don't want that in Stockport. We just want it all to be piled into the town centre, and not to build on farmers' fields in High Lane and Woodford." Okay. Well, well we'll, people we'll, don't. Not in my not in my backyard. Well, we're I'm, I'm a yimby. I'm a yes in my backyard. Okay. Because well, I've got five kids who need somewhere to live. Well, we can agree on something. And yeah. We can also agree that so uh, that's the end of part one. We're going to go to a uh, interval with our sponsor, Lily Shippen. I've interviewed plenty of business leaders in my time in journalism. When it comes to making big decisions, a lot of the leaders that I've interviewed use their PA or their EA as a big sounding board. And that's where Lily Shippen come in. They're a specialist recruitment agency for HR and business support staff. With bases in London and Manchester, Lily Shippen recruit a range of roles, including executive assistants, personal assistants, office managers, receptionists, HR business partners, and many, many more. They don't just know how to recruit HR and business support staff, but they know when to recruit. So if you're an MD, CEO or business leader, remember the name, Lily Shippen. Thank you very much to Lily Shippen. Welcome back to the Series 3 finale of the Northern Spin podcast. I'll just come in there if I may, actually. Congratulations to Lily Shippen, uh, who has just got engaged to her partner, Matt, as well. So we love a bit of good news. I love good news. You love good news. And Lily Shippen is delivering good news. <laughs> so, Chris, you mentioned last week, or no, it was two weeks ago, you ducked the issue last week. The junior doctor strike, which is in all the news at the moment, junior doctors were, as you said, demanding a 35% pay rise. And I accused you of espousing Daily Mail headlines and we agreed to revisit it for a more mature debate based on facts, evidence, and where the strike is likely to go next. Absolutely. What do you want to say? Yeah, I think all we need to do is to try and say, these are the facts. Let's have a, a grown-up conversation. They weren't Daily Mail headlines. Everybody's reporting the fact that the uh, you know, junior doctors uh, and their unions are demanding a 35% pay rise. Now, it's a good time to return to this for a couple of reasons. The junior doctors just completed a four-day strike. Uh, consultants were drafted in to, to, to cover for the junior doctors. So visitors to A&E might not have noticed any significant changes, but there's a big cost implication for that. Um, the big difference, the big problem is that every time the junior doctors go out on strike, a lot of these uh, operation waiting times get longer and longer, and they're already long because of COVID and other delays. There's no dispute that the junior doctors are asking for a 35% pay rise. 
That is completely unrealistic. Uh, as a result, members of the Royal College of Nursing have looked at the 35% pay demand of the junior doctors and have rejected their own offer and announced another 48-hour strike. Mm. I would make a point, incidentally, and you mentioned it earlier, Unison have accepted a 5% pay rise and a one-off payment of at least £1,655. I respect people's right to labor, uh, you know, right to withdraw labor, um, but but not when lives are being put at risk. I also think there's another point to be said here in terms of I would almost separate the nurses from the junior doctors. And uh, the reason I say that for is that you know nurses don't always have a natural career progression. So you can have nurses who are very very capable, completely dedicated to their job, working really hard, but they might find themselves on a certain level, pay grade, and not be able to climb up that pay grade. If you look at the situation with junior doctors, I think the starting salary is something like £29,000. After year one, it's 37000 Year two, it's 43000 They can climb up through the, they can climb up to, to, to become a registrar and then become a full consultant and then they can do private work as well. The other thing that we do need to consider, and this is where we need to have a grown-up conversation, is that the NHS staff get 20% employee contributions to their pension. Now, most people get 5% tops. Good for them. Yeah. Good but, for them. Yeah, but, but, but you know, is it is it the best use of resources to say when you're retired, you can take this, you know, gold-plated uh, pension or would it be better served to say, actually, let's split that 20%. Let's say, let's put 10% into your salary now so you're able to access more money now and you'll still have a healthy pension when you retire. Now, surely, Michael, surely you can't defend the idea that the next uh, junior's doctor strike could potentially coincide with this 48-hour strike being uh, planned by it's, the World it's funny, isn't nursing. it? Because conservatives will often evoke something called the politics of envy, where they'll accuse people who are trade unionists or Labour supporters, socialists, whatever, of having the politics of envy that they want to cut down people who are millionaires or fat cats and all the rest of it. And it, it's really interesting that it's that that rhetoric suit. They like it when it suits them, but they don't like it when suddenly somebody's looking for a little bit more. Somebody's looking for fairer terms and conditions, they're in an industrial dispute and all their advantages get picked over and they they try and divide and rule. So first of all, union members in the Royal College of Nursing rejected the deal with their union, right? So I think I just want to unpack a few of the things that you said. So you made some really good points, particularly at the end, but I think I just want to unpack a few of the things that you said because I think you've conflated a few different issues. It was the union members of the Royal College of Nursing that rejected the deal that their union had negotiated. So I think, bang, there goes one argument straight away in the attempts to divide and rule, that actually these are hardworking nurses who are being led by militant union leaders. And I think actually it turned out that the good old nurses weren't being led by their equivalent of Mick Lynch, but they're, uh, they're pretty, pretty angry. I think you fall in as well, if I may say, for the lazy argument framing the negotiations of the, of the government in dispute in a standoff position and that workers are being unreasonable. I think the 35% issue illustrates just how much their pay has fallen since the Conservatives have been in power in 2010. Look at the evidence. Railway workers accepted an offer. Postal workers have accepted an offer as of this morning. It's in the news. The reason the NHS Confederation and the British Medical Association are so hopping mad, and both are, when have you ever had a situation where 
the body representing NH tr NHS Trust and the union are both screaming at the government saying, get around the table. ACAS have intervened to try and interject and, and get things moving as well. But it's the government that won't negotiate and the government that are throwing up this 35% as if it's some kind of blockage. It's not. It's an illustration about how much people's pay have, has fallen behind. So secondly, when you rang me on Friday and we, we had our first chat about how we could frame this discussion, I was actually at the, uh, the wake for uh, my friend, the late great Peter W. Mount, CBE, former chairman of the Central Manchester Hospital NHS Trust. It was his funeral on Friday, a dear, dear friend of mine. This was something that I'd always go to Peter and discuss actually and ask for his take on it because he's very wise and, and I'm going to miss his insights. However, at that wake, Chris, were GPs, trust directors, nursing officers, practice managers, and they spoke of an absolute crisis in our NHS that any amount of warm words about being a supporter of our nurses, but just doesn't cut it anymore. One GP told me, um, that his practice was in such financial straits because of the way in which the funding flows into it. He's trying to recruit junior doctors to deliver a service to the people of the area where he, his practice is, but he just can't do it. It's almost impossible because a GP can get a visa really easily to go and work in Australia, no language restrictions, transferable recognised qualifications for, wait for it, Chris, twice the money. £30,000 in this country, 60 grand to go and work in Australia. If I had that kind of skill and that kind of earning power as a journalist, I know where I'd be right now and it wouldn't be in this studio with you with the greatest respect unless you wanted to hop on a plane to Perth. The fact that this situation has been allowed to slide into this state and the workload, the crumbling infrastructure, the inability to cope, the stress, the mental anguish that people are feeling who work in the NHS. And I know that you've got family members that work in our health service as well, Chris, but there's just this deep, deep sense of distrust and the breakdown in, in relations with the government. And it didn't help that Tory donors, Matt Hancock's landlord and Michelle Moan were awarded big, big contracts from the magic money tree that the Tories have to fund the NHS when it suits them. There is an unprecedented wave of raw anger. The reason I didn't want to interrupt you at all, because I think that we can have a civilised conversation about a really ser serious subject. And actually, broadly speaking, I think we agree on a lot of the things that we, you know, we've both said. Um, you know, nothing I've said is is a dig at you. I I've always been a big supporter of the nurses and the doctors. I've seen it with my own eyes and the, you know, the 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 dedication. It, it, is, a, it is something that's a gift that they have. Um, I do genuinely worry that... Um, the nurses and the doctors, they run the risk of losing the public support. It was interesting but that the... They're not, was, though, are they? It was interesting that the, the RCN, if you look at the vote, was it 54% to 46%? I mean, that's that's not dissimilar to... Uh, very dissimilar to the Brexit vote. That's not a... a, a, a it's still the majority have voted it's to still, strike. We're in a democracy, though. Yeah, 100%. I'm getting that. All I'm saying is that... Um, I, and I'm saying this as somebody who's passionately in favour of the, the NHS, but I do think they run the risk of, of losing the public support. Incidentally, as do the government, you know, the idea that Steve Barkley can sit in his ivory tower and not negotiate, that's, that's not a, um, you know, that's, that's, that's not a position that can be maintained. Um, I don't agree, for example. I mean, a lot of the issues that have, um, that are being raised also with the education service as well. It's not necessarily just about pay. It's also about working conditions. You know, I've spoken to junior doctors. They work like four, 12 hour shifts on the bounce. By the time they get to day three and day four, they're knackered. 
but they're not making decisions about whether to write a story and put it in business desk or business cloud like we are. You know, they've been asked to make life and death calls. And if those decisions go oh. wrong, it's their career on the line. Oh, you um, should see some of the stories I have to write. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I read every one of them. I enjoy it. You know, I mentioned the issue about uh, NHS employer um, contributions. I'm, I'm not going to criticize the police for, for, for getting good pensions and retiring after 30 years. They put their lives on the line for us, you know. And I don't think we, you talk about the, the um, policy of envy. We've got to be careful in terms of the nurses and the junior doctors. I want them to be well remunerated. They do a fantastic job. Um, I think Channel 4 did a really interesting fact checker about this 35% pay rise because this is where I think we do need to say, you know, these are the facts. And, and, and if the BMA or anybody else wants to come on and dispute them, please do. But this is as I understand it. So the BMA say the reason they've come up with this 35% pay rise is that junior doctors' pay in England has fallen by 26% since 2008-9, once you account for inflation. Now, there's the Independent Institute of Fiscal Studies, the IFS, uh, that's a think tank. They say a more accurate figure would be between 11 and 16% fall since 2010. So the BMA used the Retail Prices Index, the RPI, but critics say that's flawed. So the concern is, and this is the concern, is that this figure of 35% is a lot higher than the actual figure. And the actual figure is probably somewhere closer to half that. So by coming in and saying we want a 35% pay rise, it's clearly a negotiating tactic to try to come in at a pay rise of about 15%. But with inflation running at 10 or 11%, there's no way Jeremy Hunt and co will go above five. So all I'm saying is we do need to have a civilized conversation like we're trying to do, mm-hmm. but 35% is unrealistic. So there has to be a there has to be a, a middle ground and it's not going to be above seven or eight percent. That, but that's the point, Chris. There is a middle ground. ACAS have come into it, the Association of the Conciliation Service. Yeah. Steve Barkley has been urged both by the NHS Confederation and the BMA and ACAS to get around the table, and they're refusing to do so. It sort of suits the government to stoke the fires of discord for a bit, to demonise, to chip away at the support. And I think it's really cynical of them. So you, you make some good points. And you know, even by different inflation measures, I still think the, the fact that doctors are, are, are there their pay has fallen behind chronically and their working conditions are unacceptably dangerous is a real, real issue. Anyway, are we going to move on? Are we going yeah, to bore the listeners? I'm just going to say to you one other thing Go as on. well, Go is on. that is that I I saw the headline yesterday, Pat Cullen, the uh, nurses union leader, she was on the she was on the telly and she spoke about the fact, and the headline, which was in the BBC, said, you know, strike action might last until Christmas. So what the unions do, they need to get a mandate for strike action, and that mandate would take them up to November, December. That's not to say, and I don't think this will happen incidentally, that we'll have strike action until December. All I'm saying is that people see those headlines and they're scary. They scare people. You make the point that maybe this is what the government want. They want to scare people and then almost demonise the nurses, which they shouldn't, or demonise the doctors, which they shouldn't. But but ordinary people see those type of headlines and that type of rhetoric. Uh, that that t- sort of type of rhetoric. It scares them. It really scares them. And that 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 I find you know reprehensible. I don't like it. So moving on from uh, something that's reprehensible, yep. Suella Braverman. Yeah, <laughs> I see what you've done there. Yeah. A seamless link, a seamless link. Yeah, it was something I, I saw, which I thought was really interesting. It's very difficult for two middle-aged white guys like ourselves to talk about race. You know, I don't think you can. It's very difficult for us to talk about gender issues as no, well. But if you think back, Chris, when we had um, 
we, we have had guests on this podcast who've urged us, female guests who've urged yeah, us to be, to be good allies. Yeah. Vim Appadu did that. She encouraged us to be allies and we, we took some hints and, and leaned in and asked her how we can do that better. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't mean we can't say anything, though, does no, it? No, no. Um, Baroness Varsi uh, uh, commented uh, uh, last week, she accused Home Secretary Suella Braverman of using, quote, racist uh, rhetoric. She didn't say in particular which bits were racist, but we can assume it was to do with the small boats crossings. Um, you know, Varsi is the first Asian person to chair the Tory party. She is a grandee of the Conservative Party. She said she, Braverman's... She's, she's younger than me, yeah. Yeah, which was just, well, she's still a grandee, um, in my <laughs> eyes at least. Um, she said that uh, Suella Braverman's ethnic origin has, her words, shielded her from criticism for too long, claiming Conservatives have been hesitant to hold an ethnic minority MP to account in the same way they would a white MP. I thought that was fascinating. Do you think to see here, Michael? Yeah, definitely. I, I really like Saeed Avasi. I've met her a few times and she's the right kind of Tory. So as well as you, I, ca I can actually get on with some Tories. Um, and I'd encourage absolutely anybody out there to watch a BBC iPlayer programme watching her winter walk with Simon Armitage um, around Yorkshire. It's really good, really good. Mm. I think it's nice to see politicians doing things outside of political arenas as well. Yeah. Um, Portillo did it really well with trains, didn't he? Yes. Michael Portillo. Um, something else I want to talk to you about is Manchester Airport. You recently came back from Rome. Did Rome. you go through Manchester Airport? Yeah, Terminal 3. Went with Ryanair, okay. which is always an experience. In one of our earlier podcasts, we both of us were very critical of Manchester Airport. Yeah. And in fairness as well, we opened it up to our listenership and um, they were split as well. Some people felt it was good, but a lot of people felt it was absolutely dreadful. Um, there has been some good news with Manchester Airport. And I think it's important for, the, for balance that we tell that. Yeah, indeed. So I, I did a story on the business desk on Friday and just said, whisper it, but Manchester Airport might be getting better. So it's not so much that I've... I'm, I'm not changing my tune or I've been bought off or anything like that. And I know you like your anecdotes as well, that, uh, that amounts to evidence. But genuinely, I thought, oh, yeah, this seems a bit better. Yeah, I've got through here a bit quicker. No, I'm not queuing through the car park to get in at three in the morning. I wasn't told to get there three hours before the flight. And everything seemed to be running a bit quicker. And then I went to Terminal 2 to pick up my son, Matt, who was flying back from a convention in Texas. And, and I was genuinely pleasantly surprised. This just didn't seem very Manchester Airport at all. So I looked at the data. 99% of Easter weekend passengers got through security in under 15 minutes. That is an improvement. However, Terminal 3 is still too cramped, and by design, it's a very poor experience. Terminal 1 is still horrible from everything I can gather. The car parks still stink like a urinal, and the signage is pretty unhelpful, again, by design. But they've hired more people, so you, know, you can get through security a lot quicker. The system seems to be working a bit better, and basically they're fulfilling their obligation to be able to get people to take aeroplanes on time and that's got to be a good thing. But Manchester Airport is key to the Northwest economy. It is. It's a gateway to the Northwest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad to see things are improving at Manchester Airport. Yep, so there's an election going on at the moment. So all the politicians are on the best behaviour. So there's no one standing out for our section on manoeuvres. So we're replacing it with on my soapbox. You're not happy, Chris, are you, about the growing problem about the boozy behaviour of theatregoers? I'm probably not as angry as you are but okay. that's because you culturally you are culturally more enlightened than me um, but uh, my 
I, I'm a twin. My twin brother goes to uh, goes to the theatre quite a lot. He got the culture gene in our in uh, in uh, you know, in our family. There was a story which um, you know we were talking about off air earlier about Manchester's Palace Theatre, and they uh, they had a performance of the Bodyguard, and it was stopped before the end because people were singing over the lead during the final song. Now I'll be honest with you, if I was paying fifty, sixty quid to watch a performance of the Bodyguard at the Palace Theatre, I probably wouldn't want. John from my street next door singing at the same time. You think there's something more, you know, more, more, more sinister. Yeah, there is. So fair play to the mill, you know, Manchester's insurgent uh, online newspaper. Giving credit to another media organisation, Michael. So Yoshi and Daryl on their podcast last week did a really interesting experiment. So they talked about this. Daryl got one of his friends who's an actor who said, this is a really serious problem. Now he, this actor, I can't remember his name, but he'd been in nine to five, which was at the Palace Theatre. My Rachel and her mum, Margaret, went to that. And Rachel said she felt really unsafe. Yeah. She said there were so many drunk people. They had to stop the performance. I just don't, I think there's a couple of things. People, the, the main one is I think people have lost a certain decorum and a set of manners. They don't know how to behave in public anymore. Maybe it was being locked up at home for a couple of years. But um, I think people's behaviour has, has really negatively changed. Anyway, the thing the mill did, they went online to book a ticket to go and see the bodyguard at the Palace Theatre in Manchester. And Yoshi got his laptop out and he booked a ticket. And then it, the, the next window pops up. Why not upgrade to the Manchester package, a bottle of Prosecco and some crisps? And then the next one, why not also add a couple of cheeky gins and tonics? So basically the Palace Theatre are saying, fancy a night out at musical theatre, get leathered, come along. Yeah. Mm. So it's almost building into the experience that this is now a raucous booze fest. And, you know, I, I, I'm on, on record as saying, I think this country's got a massive alcohol problem. Yeah. And I'm going to speak out about it every opportunity. And you can call me a killjoy if you want. I'm not, you won't, but yeah. someone might. But do, genuinely, I think people need to take a really good look at themselves and think about their behaviour, how it affects other people, and just the human cost and what it costs our NHS, which you spoke about before as well. You know, the, the amount of people who are obese or dying early because of drink. My uh, my daughter went to uh, to do bingo at the weekend. I mean, she's only twenty two, um, and uh, you know, a lot of people there were had 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 a few. It's fair to say. And what I would say is that for the vast majority of people, in terms of drinking, it's fine. Um, in terms of it's, if it's managed, if it's in moderation, but um, it, it's becoming an increasing problem when people drive to you know drink to excess and then they impose their behaviour on other people and ruin the experience. And you're not telling me that story that we talked about last week as well with the CBI. Yeah. Yeah. All the, the whole sort of socialization around workplaces and, and works do's. You're not telling me that drink wasn't taken at those do's where women felt unsafe and which ultimately resulted in women feeling so vulnerable at work that they put complaints in and the chief exec was in, the director general was ultimately sacked. Uh, well, I can ask you a question actually. And uh, it's something we've not prepared for, right? Okay. You stopped drinking 10 years ago. More okay. than that. Yeah. More than 10 years ago. So I'm 50, nearly 51. Yeah. And I like a drink on a Friday and I, I, I on a Saturday, it's always the same whiskey and Coke. Um, I've only ever in my entire life been drunk three times. And, uh, I, and the reason I, and I don't like, I didn't like not being in control. And uh, that's the reason when I never, ever have anything to drink when I'm driving. And if I ever feel like I'm losing control, you get a bit heady, 
I stopped drinking and I'll only ever have a maximum of three. Now, people, you're right. Some people will say, oh, you're a killjoy, Chris, you know, because you only have three and uh, you don't want to reach into your wallet and, uh, and, and do a round. You know, what was it about drink that convinced you to stop drinking? I didn't enjoy it anymore. It's a bit like golf and I wasn't particularly good at it either. I couldn't hold my drink. I didn't like it. I didn't like how it made me feel. It's effect on my health. It's effect on my behavior. And, and also the fact that I've got kids and I didn't ever want that situation where one of my sons rings me up and says, dad, I'm in trouble. Can you come and get me? And I go, oh, sorry, son, I've had a drink. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair point. Many re there are many, many more reasons that I don't particularly want to go into in public, but more examples I could no, share, which you. is hu humiliating and embarrassing, but no, for all those, all of the above, which I think is reason enough. No, well, and on respect. that note, we're going to go to a party pooper break. Okay. <laughs> Red Flag Alert is a Manchester-based data intelligence platform and they've produced a clever online tool called Growth Flag. Growth Flag pulls live data from a comprehensive data set and quickly shows where growth potential exists in individual businesses across the UK. Remember the name Red Flag Alert and Growth Flag. Welcome back to the third and final part of Northern Spin and a big thanks to our sponsor Red Flag Alert Growth Flag. We call this the fun bit, Chris. After my party poop a bit just before yeah. the break. Yeah. I'm particularly keen to find out how your first game of the cricket season went on Sunday. Playing for White Coppice still this Absolutely. season? Absolutely. Still playing yeah. for White Coppice. Yeah, is that, we, is that um, in the Chorley uh, League? Or, yeah, it's, or the a, it's the Palace Shield League, actually. The more and smallly Palace Shield League. Uh, there's about uh, eight divisions. I mean, the league season starts on Saturday, so I'm not going to make excuses, Michael. So it was just a friendly game. It's just a bit of fun. And how did you do? Are you a well, you're a batsman, right? Opening bat? Yeah, I am. I am Great. an opening bat. But I'll be honest with you, Michael. Hitting for I'm, six? No, well, I mean, I'm not going to make excuses and people really aren't interested in my own performance. But you were out first ball, weren't you? The, the wicket was Chris. really green. Yeah, it was out first ball of the season. But <laughs> oh, what it was, what it was, and I know you're not a, cr a cricket aficionado like I am, but, you know, I've practiced all winter in the nets. I've, I've spent a lot of money on bowling machines, you know, facing balls about 65, 70 miles an hour. I went out on a wicket that was so green and so slow. We call it a, we call it a sticky dog. A bad workman blames this spinner, his tools. This spinner came on, bowled up the hill, bowled a filthy little ball outside off stump. England Freckleton, you know who you are, great bunch of lads incidentally. And at the last minute, I thought, the first ball of this season, I thought, I'll just get off the mark and hit that through the covers. And I managed to spoon it back. He caught it on the third attempt. He like cruelly, cruelly deceived me. And uh, yeah, I was out first ball. Worst thing is, because it was a friendly game, they enabled me to bat again, allowed me to bat again. I came back in and got two. Uh, terrible. Right. Well, that's, that's something, isn't it? It's, I'm improving. Uh, what else have I been doing? Loads of funerals, sadly. Um, a ridiculous workload. I've been writing about independent cinemas, uh, GigPig, and a smart app that matches... Uh, venues with artists. I like them. I uh, had one of their people on one of my panels recently as well. I like Good. the idea. Good. Um, I was also told off for calling Abersock in Wales, Wilmslow by the Sea. Apparently that's exactly the thing that their new PR Supremo, the Queen of Events, Liz Taylor, has been brought in to move on from that image. Um, and they want to call it the Welsh Riviera, which is hilarious. I discovered a Twitter account as well called at Cheshire Set, which catalogues life in the resort of Abbasot, which is, I would encourage you to look at. The thing is, sometimes you'll come up with glib lines and I'll think to myself, that's a bit naughty. But the bottom line is, loads of people that I know have got holiday homes in Abbasot. And a lot of them, their main home is in Cheshire. So when you call it Wilmslow by the Sea, you're probably not being factually incorrect. It's probably the elderly edge lot 
who don't like it being called Wilmslow. They think it demeans it because they think of Wilmslow as being a bit fur coat, no knickers. Mm. I don't know. I genuinely don't know. But good luck to Liz Taylor. She's a really impressive woman. And if anyone can rebrand it, she can. She's specifically working for a part of it called the Warren, which they have said is a very exclusive resort, which you can't go to unless you own a, a unit there. Anyway, anyway, this Thursday, I'm off to the Lake District, not to a private holiday home on a private estate, but with fresh walks to lug my untrained, overworked, underperforming legs up Scarfell Pike. Wish me luck. Yeah, well, I think the weather should be good for you on Thursday, actually. Hope so. What about you? Um, Judy goes to Edinburgh this week, but uh, last week I hosted the Yorkshire Tech Climbers in Leeds. Um, run that with Active Profile, Business Cloud, the media partners. 100 people in the room, loads of great businesses. I'd been to Leeds a lot. I used to work at the uh, Yorkshire Evening Post back in the day. Um, first time I stayed down at uh, Leeds Docks, opposite the Leeds Royal Armouries. I went for a couple of quick runs along the canal. I don't do a long run because um, it was the uh, marathon in uh, Manchester at the weekend. My next door neighbour did it in three hours. Hours, 56 minutes um leeds docks doesn't get the same attention as media city but it's really impressive and i, I think leeds is is probably the the most up-and-coming city in the north so you know that space did you do the event in that big space next to the royal armories that event space no i've done it used I, to be called savile hall oh <laughs> no i um we did uh it, not we, after we did peter it, we savile did uh, we did it further up. Uh, we did it further up in a in, in a bar, come um, you know, flexible workspace. But um, it, it's just a really impressive what they've done in Leeds. And cool. uh, I also interviewed. Yeah, you're, Jenny you're, Johnson. you're a big name dropper. Who've you been uh, yeah, yeah. hanging out with and interviewing? Well, I mean, uh, I interviewed Jenny Johnson. She, oh, yeah. uh, I, I run a. I run a monthly uh, group called Proactive Progress. We bring together like-minded, fast-growing businesses, and we have a monthly meeting, and we bring a, a guest in every week, uh, every month rather. Jenny Johnson, she ran a nursery business called Kids Aloud for 17 years. She was very dissatisfied at the level of nursery provision that there was for her own children. So she thought, you know what? She literally, that day, she wrote out a business plan and launched Kids Aloud, ran it for 17 years, sold it just before the lockdown. She uh, was going to retire and then she had this epiphany and uh, she's got a mojo back because she came up with another idea called My First Five Years, which is a it's a development app and it, and it monitors kids for the first five years of their life. Incredible business. She's incredible. She's authentic. She's humble. Um, she's got a younger daughter who plays football, so we have a shared interest as well. Very good. Uh, oh, another cultural reference. I've, I got this book sent to me by Bernard Gins, former the uh, business editor of the Yorkshire Post. He's written a book called Outcast, Cook versus the City which is, uh, I'm really looking forward to reading it. It's got a, a great citation on the back from Gary Wilson from Endless. You probably know him, don't you? I don't know Gary personally, ah, but I know Endless. I do. And he's a very, very, very good friend of mine. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's about a cor big corporate battle. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Do you pay for any books? You just get them all sent to you? Well, Bernard sent me that one. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I buy loads of books. Um, I want to talk to you about... I buy them from House of Books and Friends at the top of King Street. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear because you're still old-fashioned that you like reading books, don't you? Is that old fashioned? Well, it's more old fashioned than me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an audible man, but a lot of people are Kindle people as well. Oh. Um, Archers, are you a big fan? What you mean the uh, Radio Four drama? Sadly, no, I'm not. No, no, Archers, as in the Archers under railways. Um, now, when I thought of Archers, I also think of EastEnders, you know, because there was a garage under the Archers. Um, but I read a story last week, and it really caught my eye. So, How can plans... I be a fan of them? What, what, why is it no, one of those things that you can either like, is, like or dislike? Because the thing is, what it does is it it, it takes a existing infrastructure, which yeah. is a railway bridge, yeah. which has natural built arches in it, yeah. and it creates a new use for those arches. Um, What's so, not to like about that? Well. That's what I like about it. So there's a company called the Arch Company, which I think is a great name. It does what it says on the tin. Will there ever be a boy born who could outswim a shark? Probably not. 
No, no, it just not. seems it's one of those inconsequential comments. That's okay, all. okay. Well, I'm going to. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really interesting comment you just made. Then I'm trying to. I'm trying to thought. I'm trying to process it in my mind while we're talking. Well, um, well, it, well, if you get where it comes from, fine. If you don't, you probably need to read more. Okay. But anyway, probably, okay. The 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 Arch Company. Just to give you some background about them, um, they 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 want to bring a thousand empty or derelict spaces across uh, England and Wales back into use by 2030. And we hear a lot about you know um, trying to revitalise city centres, town centres, obviously. Labour promised to revitalise, um, you know, high streets. That was one of their fifty promises that they made last week. It was also a levelling up pledge by Boris Johnson. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could uh, we could play this game of uh, tennis all day. Um, but what was interesting about the article that I read last week is that they want to bring in uh, or revitalise ten arches, abandoned railway arches. I think it's in Corporation Street in Manchester City Centre. If you walk down past home. Um, which is fantastic the way they've revitalised that. There's a load of arches on the right-hand side as you walk into town, and they want to bring these arches back into use. I just think it's fantastic. I, I don't think that's where it is, because I think they are all opened up. I mean, the green room right up at the top of Whitworth Street was for a while. I think Corporation Street's in Salford, isn't it? Oh, right, because they, they do own a number of arches in Salford as well. Yeah. Um, well, it's great news anyway, isn't it? I think we both agree on that one. So um, what else did you want to ask me? Well, in any terms of culture well, tips, have you got any more cultural offerings? Yes, I've been writing about independent cinemas. There's the Rex in Wilmslow, not fur coat, no knickers. Okay. Uh, Every Man in Liverpool, Manchester, and Altrincham. I didn't realise, but Every Man Cinemas is quoted on the stock market, and they had quite decent results that they announced last week. They seem to be doing quite well. Now, you go to mainstream cinemas, don't you? Which is the, your local one in? Yeah, go to View. Go to View quite a lot. Is that at Middlebrook in Bolton? Yeah, we go to two. We go to the Capital Centre, or we go to uh, the one at Middlebrook. Yeah. I I just think those private equity-owned big cinema chains have just become really overpriced, commoditized, dirty, margin-squeezing, overpriced pick-and-mix, sugary drinks, popcorn for 15 quid. Is it Cineworld that's really struggling at the moment? Well, yeah. Cineworld's in administration, and View Cinemas is filing for bankruptcy in America. Mm. Yeah, they're both in a lot of bother, but that more intimate thing, like the, our local cinema in Marple, is a single screen thing called uh, the Regent. Uh, the Rex in Wilmslow is aligned with the Savoy in Heaton Moor in Stockport as well. I'm going to have a chat to the guy behind that in the next couple of weeks. Really interesting. And of course, the other thing I've been doing is watching Succession. Yeah. Oh my God. Have you guys been watching Succession? Oh. <gasps> You don't know what you're missing. Just for those people who are not viewing this on uh, on YouTube, uh, Michael's talking to our two members of our uh, producers who produce this podcast. We're not producing to a live audience. Um, yeah, I'm, I am going to watch Succession, but uh, I need to get a uh, subscription for it. I, yesterday, I watched a, uh, I paid £4.49 for it, but uh, me and the uh, the family, we watched the Whitney Houston film, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Now, she died in 2012. She's aged 48. It's really sad, actually, yeah. her descent... Uh, well, it's just a descent into drugs. Um, the role of Whitney Houston was played by a brilliant English actress who I'd not heard of before called uh, Naomi Aki. She was absolutely sensational. She's 31, born in Walthamstow. Um, she was just a, a brilliant, brilliant performance. Now, the reason I want to mention it for is because Whitney, um, her record producer, Clive Davis, in the film is played by Stanley Tucci, oh, who Stanley. you mentioned last week. I did. Stanley, book. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. he was brilliant as well. He is great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I have been watching his 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 Instagram. He does some great little uh, flaneuring videos and a bit of food. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Because um, I read actually that Stanley Tucci. I'm out. Well, you tell me. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't he have throat cancer or something which affected his ability to eat certain foods? 
Um, so he has to limit what he eats. So you mentioned, I, I, well, I, I read it on Wikipedia. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> we'll apologise. But that's what I read after uh, after this particular uh, film. The coolest man alive. Anyway, that's all for episode 10 of season three of Northern Spin. We're ending it, ending this entire series on a, one of our favourite discussion topics, Stanley Tucci. That's yeah. good. Uh, we'll be taking a short break, but season four will be back in May after the local elections. We're also on Apple Podcasts. Please review us. Don't forget to press the subscribe button on any platform that you watch us on or listen to us on. Follow us on Twitter at Northern underscore spin one watches on youtube thank you to what media to jamie and ellis for recording this podcast to our sponsors oscar technology lily shippen and growth flag in conjunction with red flag alert and a special mention to elliot taylor for providing the music my name is michael taylor this has been northern spin and as always my name is happy clappy chris mcguire <laughs>